0: Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing.
1: Good morning. Good afternoon and good evening for those of you joining us in different time zones or maybe watching us on replay. I'm Bill Glasgow, head of state and local initiatives at the Volcker Alliance, along with Susan Walker, co-director of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Morning, Susan. Good morning. And this is Special Briefing. Today's topic is infrastructure. That's something that's near and dear to many of us who've coped with traffic, yearned for better mass transit, or try to get online where broadband is bulky or maybe even unavailable. And this subject is also near and dear to the Biden administration. In the American Jobs Plan, it's proposing over $2 trillion worth of federal infrastructure investments with equity and employment in mind, as well as concrete. And that's on top of substantial spending for clean water and broadband, among other things, in the American Rescue Plan Act that passed earlier this year. So with us today to discuss this subject are a panel of extraordinary insight and wisdom. It's a great panel. Deputy Transportation Secretary Polly Trottenberg, fresh out of of service to New York City. Congressman Earl Blumenauer, who may be a little delayed today because he's facing two House votes. National Urban League President and CEO Mark Morial, who also saw this from the ground up as mayor of New Orleans. And my friend Reason Foundation transportation guru, Bob Poole, and my, my dear, dear friend, Dick Ravitch, who among his many accomplishments, ran New York's MTA. So before we start the proceedings, just a couple of housekeeping notes. This session is on the record. Media is covering this, thank goodness. And you can expect to be quoted. The playbacks of this and all the past special briefings are online online. At the Volcker Alliance and PEN IUR websites, and we'll post today's session as soon as we can today. We have already taken a number of questions from audience members in advance, so we won't be doing live questions today. And we'll be posting contact information for all of our panelists as well as our media representatives at the Volcker Alliance and PEN IUR. That'll be up at the end of the program if anybody needs to follow up or get in touch with me or get in touch with Susan, we'll be happy to put you in touch with the right people. So with all the housekeeping and introductions out of the way, let me welcome my friend and colleague, Susan Wachter from Penn IUR to kick things off.
2: Thank you so much, Bill. And thank you to the Volcker Lions for the opportunity to be convening this series with you. And it is my great pleasure to call upon the former New York Lieutenant Governor and Volcker Lions Director, and the inspiration for our joint work to introduce our first speaker, Deputy Secretary, Holly Trachtenberg. Dick, it's
3: all yours. Thanks, Susan. These webinars conducted by Bill and Susan are invaluable education tools. The most underreported, reported under-discussed issues in the United States, in my judgment, are the financial and fiscal situations of states and cities, and obviously physical infrastructure as a critical part of this. So I am delighted that Holly Trottenberg, whose skill and knowledge about public transportation was demonstrated in the superb job she did as Commissioner of Transportation in New York City. But before that, she had experience working on the Hill for both Senator Moynihan and Senator Schumer, and then worked in the Obama administration as well. And she is brilliant and lovely, and I'm eager to hear what she has to say, and I'll probably argue with her later. It's all yours, Polly.
4: Well. Dick, thank you so much for those kind words. I have to admit, being called brilliant and lovely, uh, you've made my day. And look, thank you for your friendship and leadership. You have been obviously a giant in New York, nationally and internationally on exactly these issues, state and local budgetary issues, transportation. We are so grateful to you. And, And Bill and Susan, thank you so much for having me. This is a fantastic panel. Thrilled to be here with Congressman Blumenauer, who is such a visionary thinker on transportation. And now my neighbor in Washington, I found out we only live a few blocks away. Mayor Morial has been a great leader, particularly in this challenging year. And Bob Poole, Bob and I don't always agree, but I am a big follower of Bob's writings and, and everything that the Reason Foundation puts out on transportation. I find it very really thoughtful. But we're here today to talk about the American Jobs Plan. And I think, you know, as 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 Dick mentioned, I'm former transportation commissioner for New York City and Secretary Buttigieg, as you all know, mayor of South Bend, previously mayor of South Bend, Indiana. So, we bring, I think, a real local government perspective, and it's made us incredibly enthusiastic champions of the American Jobs Plan. You know, the president's really once in a generation plan to invest deeply in infrastructure, tackle climate change, create jobs, and focus those investments, particularly at underserved communities. And I think you all have seen the statistics on it a focus on you know, a big focus on transportation infrastructure, over 600 billion for, for roads and bridges, but particularly for doing what we say call fixing them right, fixing them for safety, fixing them for climate resiliency, sort of not doing things the same old way. Big investments in mass transit, in passenger rail, and in starting to really further deploy electric vehicles and decarbonize our transportation system. Also with an eye for equity, for making sure that those climate investments are really targeted in underserved communities. The AJP is also going to have, I think, a big focus at the state and local level on roadway safety, something that I was very focused on in New York with Vision Zero. It is no secret that here in the United States, our roadway fatality numbers have not been good. They have been particularly tragic in this past year of COVID. And our European counterparts have seen much you know, improved safety gains on their roadways. So excited to make that a big focus of the American Jobs Plan. And look, I know this audience, a sophisticated audience, you know how important these investments are and and what they mean in terms of affordability for our transportation system, reliability, resiliency, sustainability, creating good paying jobs, doing all the things that we know infrastructure can do. Just sort of to take a moment on the sort of the political situation we find ourselves in, and I know Congressman Blumenauer will speak about this as well. Congress is, we are sort of in debate about the larger jobs plan, but also a a surface transportation reauthorization. And the Biden administration, I'd say, is currently sort of double tracking, working on the big ideas of the American jobs plan, but also really trying to engage in a bipartisan way with the committee leadership on Capitol Hill on a surface reauthorization. I think some of you have seen the president himself has been engaged in that, as has the secretary. and, And I think there's some there's some optimism. Transportation, you know, Dick knows this. For many generations, it was a pretty bipartisan issue. And I think there's, there's hope that there are some places where the two sides can come together on surface reauthorization. I think, Bill, as you mentioned, the American job sign, of course, is bigger than just transportation. It's Replacing lead pipes all over the country, bringing affordable broadband all over the country, looking at affordable housing and at what we would call the human infrastructure. And I know there's, there's some debate about whether human infrastructure qualifies as infrastructure, but I think anyone who experienced what we did in this past year of COVID and saw how vital our frontline workers, our caregivers, that that human element is in keeping our country, our cities, and our states thriving knows that's an important piece of infrastructure. So I've been lucky. As you heard from Bill, I've had a a career. I've been on Capitol Hill and at USDOT before. And is this one of those magical moments where a lot of things come together? I'm really hoping that it is. I think, you know, we have a president who is committed to infrastructure, who, who is a big proponent. We have a secretary who I think, you know, has a tremendous gift for outreach and communication and sort of helping bring infrastructure, which can be a wonky Subjects sort of make it accessible and understandable in the political dialogue. We have, I think, some goodwill on both sides of the island, Congress. So perhaps we really have a political moment where we can get at that $1 trillion backlog we have in terms of infrastructure investments, but do it in a way that's enhancing resiliency, enhancing sustainability, enhancing equity. So I'm excited to be a part of that effort in the Biden administration. I miss my friends in New York, though, and look forward to hearing from the audience today. I know a lot of folks in this audience will be part of that partnership, I think, to try and make some of these big accomplishments a reality. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much, Holly. If I can call you by your, your first name instead of please, your, please do. your official name. We'll return to a lot of these issues during the Q&A. So, so thank you for sticking it out in an obviously busy time. Susan, why don't you introduce Mayor Morial? Yes, uh, my pleasure uh, you, to do so. It's in fact my, it Right now.
2: Yes, it's my great, great pleasure to introduce Mayor, former Mayor Mark Morial. Who has been known for his inspirational work on a new Marshall Plan for the United States, which he has developed over time, and it may now be the moment that it can come together. And the heart of the new Marshall Plan for the U.S. is that it serves the entire nation with a focus on those who have been underserved. So this is a moment. Where Mark's words have impact that goes beyond inspiration to actualization, we are thinking. But I want to hear directly from Mark. And before we turn to Mark, I also want to say it is our great pleasure that Mark serves on our board and is an important member of our board at Penn IUR. Mark, to you.
5: Hey, Susan, thank you very much. And thank you for the kind words and for your leadership. And great to see. Deputy Secretary Tottenberg, and thank you, Polly, for your important words. And to everyone who's here today and these discussions, I feel we're always preaching to the saved because we we all get it, we all understand it. But I didn't want to put this point on this discussion about infrastructure. Several years ago, the National Urban League, and this is in the Obama years, decided that we were going to advance our best thinking about the future of the nation. And we developed over a number of months, a plan or a document called the Main Street Marshall Plan. And Main Street was certainly, as opposed to a Wall Street Marshall Plan, a Main Street Marshall Plan. That plan, in many interesting ways, when the president announced his America jobs plan. And I read through the summary of the jobs plan. I said, "Why, my, my, looks like the president Xeroxed our plan. And I said, that's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing because that's what you want when you're trying to impact public policy. And we had been on a mission. We printed a booklet. We had a website knocking on every single door during the campaign, briefing every single candidate, talking to members on the Hill and external folks about And this is the fine point I think we all need to embrace. And that is, this is a 21st century plan for 21st century problems. And I think the president, in being bold and imaginative, is meeting the moment that we're in. Many times, I sometimes think that some members of Congress respectfully are time warped looking at 21st century problems and thinking that we can solve them with a 20th century response. Infrastructure today is bigger than surface transportation. And while surface transportation is a foundation of it, and the acute needs of infrastructure should be so clear to people. After we saw what happened on, I believe, the Interstate 40 bridge in Memphis, where a crack was found, the bridge was shut down, and it created absolute chaos on an artery that all sorts of products and people move, move along. So surface transportation is certainly paramount. But as we do surface transportation, we have to look at it with through an equitable lens. That's where the projects are, what kind of projects we're funding, who works on the projects, who designs the projects, who certainly benefits from the economic growth that the projects create. But secondly, and this is the 21st century, broadband. Broadband is to now what roads were in the early 20th century. Broadband is today what the interstate highway system was to the 50s and the 60s. It is essential. And to invest significantly in various elements of broadband to meet that moment, the National Urban League has promulgated what we call the Lewis Latimer Plan. We love to create our own blueprints, and our blueprint includes investments in both the network, affordability, and also in economic participation by Black people and other people of color and women-owned business enterprises. But I also think that in this moment, this debate is going to be framed around a 20th century plan which focuses solely on surface transportation issues. And a 21st century notion that the president has proffered, which is including the American Jobs Plan, and I think the discussion and the debate and our voices have to be put towards that we need something bigger, and we need something bigger for various reasons, for just the fundamentals of crumbling infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, water infrastructure, community facilities in urban communities schools and community centers, underinvested in uh, public dollars Hmm. over a period of years. We need this plan for those reasons, but we also need it because we learned something from the Great Recession, and that is that when all of a sudden the austerity conversation began, it meant that the recovery was slow, it was tedious, and it took us 10 years To get back to where we were from a jobs number situation. If this economy is going to build back faster and better and more equitably, there is no better way to invest in the American economy than through a broad-based infrastructure plan. So we'll be out there working, we'll be out there fighting, and my appeal to everyone is we need to lend our voices to understanding what we need in the 21st century and not allow this debate to be framed around a yesterday focus but to be framed around a, a today and tomorrow focus my final thing about the use of the term infrastructure we really need a better term i'll tell a little story i was i had a local infrastructure plan back when i was mayor of new orleans we bundled together we a whole host of sources and came up with a multi billion dollar plan to redo infrastructure and I ran into one of my constituents and he said, we don't need any infrastructure plan. We need to fix some streets. He said, we need to fix some streets. He says, infrastructure, that's not what we need. We need streets. So I took it to heart. I went back and I said, you know what? Let's talk about this thing as a jobs plan. Let's just zip our lips in using the term infrastructure because people are confused by what it means. It's a policy term. Let's talk about a jobs plan and define everything we're going to invest in, whether it's rail systems or housing or the airport or the water system as a job creating plan. And, you know, we probably need to figure out, discipline our own selves to help a more easy understanding and excitement about what this is about. This is about jobs, temporary jobs and Building the infrastructure that allows an economy to grow. So, Susan, and also to Penn IUR and the Volcker Institute, thank you for having me today. Good to be with you. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Mayor. And indeed, it is the American Jobs Plan. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Bill, back to you to introduce, and I'm not sure who our next speaker will be, because I don't know if the congressman is available.
1: We just got word from Congressman Blumenauer's office that he is still held up on the floor with a vote. So let's shift the cards around again, shuffle the deck, and turn to Bob Poole, who I know has a lot of thoughts on how the jobs plan, the infrastructure plan should be paid for or is going to be paid for. And so Bob you wrote about it recently in the reason uh, newsletter and i know you've been testifying about this so give us your thoughts because as as polly says your guy people even even people don't agree with you listen to you because because we know you're you're a great researcher
6: thanks very much bill i'm very pleased to be here with all of you there's a lot of good things in the president's plan but i think three key elements are missing and they all three fit together user fees long-term financing and private capital User fees are not just a traditional way we've we've done things. Uh, They make good sense and people understand the idea of users' pay and users' benefit. I think in my, my Highways book, I suggest that we should be working toward a future in which people pay their roadway bills in a similar way that they pay their electricity bill, their gas bill, their water bill, and so forth. So a step toward doing that is to figure out how we're going to replace the fuel tax. The gas tax is running out of steam and we've had learned a lot already from pilot projects in many estates. Tolls are another user fees that could be expanded significantly to help pay for our aging highways, particularly our interstate highways and bridges that badly need a lot of work. Tolls on this were charged electronically and per mile. They could actually become the first step in a national transformation from per-gallon taxes to per-mile charges on the segment that constitutes the interstate highways. Now, reliable tolls provide a revenue stream that you can issue long-term revenue bonds to finance major projects. And this is particularly suited to what we would call mega projects, billion-dollar scale investments. Long-term financing of long-lived infrastructure is a basic public finance, good government policy that we really need to rely on more when we face big crises in the need for infrastructure. Bondholders, in the case of highways, insist on proper maintenance, which is very, very valuable. So we not only build back better to begin with, but we have a sustainable funding source and we avoid the chronic problems of deferred maintenance that afflict a lot of of our infrastructure. Now, the TRB, the Transportation Research Board's 2018 report that Congress asked for on the future of the interstates estimated that the cost of rebuilding them as they're wearing out and modernizing them was a minimum of a trillion dollars over 20 years. That's a big price tag. Long-term financing and private investment can play big roles in doing that if we decide we want to do that. Interstates handle 25% of all the vehicle miles of travel in the country on 2.5% of the highway lane miles. It's our very most important highway infrastructure, and we really need to face up to the challenge of reinvesting in them for their second century of, of use. Who would invest in revenue-based projects like I'm talking about? Public pension funds, insurance companies, and other institutional investors have equity to invest in long-term investments that have provide steady returns over many years the 50 largest infrastructure investment funds over the past five years have raised just about $500 billion in addition to all the smaller investment funds and the amounts raised prior to five years ago. And $500 billion, typically when that's invested in revenue-based projects, provides about 25% of the capital cost, with the rest being financed by long-term revenue bonds, and by things like the TIFIA credit program in in DOT, which has been very, very valuable in investor finance projects. Unfortunately, most of the private capital that these funds are raising, including our pension funds putting in money, is going overseas into projects in Europe, Latin America, and Asia, because we have so few public-private partnership opportunities for projects of this kind that really tap into these billions and billions of private capital. So I think Congress could open the door for more of this private investment by several provisions that could be added into either a reauthorization bill or an infrastructure bill. Number one would be to remove the $15 billion federal cap on tax-exempt private activity bonds, which basically has been all used up in projects over the last 15 years. And there's no federal cap on uh, tax-exempt muni bonds. Uh, It's not clear to me why, if there's going to be a big expansion of private investment, why there should be a federal cap at all on these. But the other thing is that these bonds historically have been used only for new infrastructure. They should be available for rebuilding existing brownfield infrastructure. And the language is very unclear on that. And most people assume it only applies to new. So private activity bonds for rebuilding existing infrastructure is a critically important reform in addition to raising or eliminating the cap. Number two, the TIFIA program has been very helpful to these investor finance projects. It needs to be streamlined to make it available in a more timely fashion so that people who apply don't have to wait a year when interest rates can change and change their financing plan all around. That should be easily doable. Third, there's a long existing three-state pilot program for toll finance infrastructure reconstruction that has not succeeded. One reason is that it only allows a state to fix one interstate, and that's political poison because people will go to their legislators and say, why are you singling us out to pay tolls? What about all those other interstates? So it needs to be open to all 50 states and available to do all of a state's interstates so that they can present a 20-year plan. Here's how we're going to fix all the interstates one at a time in priority order, and it's it's all going to be done. Finally, another suggestion that we have not written up, but I think would be useful, when it comes to mega projects like failing interstate bridges and so forth, instead of Congress or DOT picking winners, why not offer states that feds would cover 10% of the capital costs if they go to toll-based financing and private capital investment and do the project that way. That would be an interesting incentive for states to build on what they've been doing in terms of research about toll finance, interstate replacement, and actually do the job. These changes would cost taxpayers very, very little. There's very little budget impact, but they could generate billions of dollars in investment from pension funds, insurance companies, and other institutional investors that are ready, willing, and able to do their part to help us rebuild the country. Thanks very much, and I look forward to the question period.
1: Well, thanks. Thanks so much, Bob. Congressman Blumenauer has, has just joined us. Earl, I love, I love the bicycle that was pinned to your lapel before. It's a good symbol. I'm a bike rider. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And I know that, that, that time is tight because you've got to get back to the floor and do your business. So give us your thoughts on the the various infrastructure plans coming out of the administration, what you see as the strong points and how you, how you see all this coming out.
7: Great. Well, thank you. I really appreciate this conversation. I'm kind of frustrated that I wasn't able to take it in. I, I look forward to Polly explaining to me in greater detail, other than my uh, encountering her on her morning walk with her puppy. I need to be more respectful. But I am appreciative of a chance to share a little bit of my perspective. It's no secret to a number of you on this call that I have been deeply, deeply troubled by our continued underinvestment in infrastructure, how we've reduced our investment since the 60s, how that underinvestment has particularly impacted marginal communities, people of color, and of course, It's made a big difference in terms of our dealing with the environmental impact of our infrastructure. I had a hearing before my international trade committee a couple of weeks ago where we focused on global competitiveness and American infrastructure. And it's kind of embarrassing as we walk through examples in the United States where infrastructure is is literally third world. We can do better. We must do better. That's why I have championed a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure investment package when I was first on the infrastructure transportation committee for a decade. And then I explicitly sought transfer to Ways and Means, the money committee in the House for tax and revenue, because I want us to be able to finance it right. And as no secret to all of you, that has been the point of contention. We've had any number of people who talk about infrastructure, but when it comes time to us actually paying for it, not so much. And sadly, both Democratic and Republican administrations have prioritized other initiatives. Well, for the first time in the 25 years I've been in Congress, there is an administration that is serious about investing in infrastructure. It has made it a priority and it is not just going to be roads and bridges and transit systems. It goes beyond to be able to deal with the very areas that make infrastructure possible and in terms of the human infrastructure that's going to make it possible to support these jobs. You've heard from Polly about the specifics of the plan and the impact of investments on cities and states, but let me focus for a moment on some of the broader issues before our Ways and Means Committee. Beyond transportation, the plan proposes substantial investments in clean energy incentives, wind and solar tax credits, domestic manufacturing, job training, broadband, water, housing, and of course that caring economy which makes it possible for workers to survive and thrive. Now, the President's plan, very different from what we've seen in the past, it includes important suggestions about how we finance the investments. Now, I want to be clear, I've been the unofficial champion in Congress for raising the user fees. And I've been working on that, not just in Congress for the last 12 years, introducing the first gas tax increase in 26 years, but I've campaigned for user fee increases across the country. And we've seen over three dozen states on a bipartisan basis, who've stepped up and taken that challenge, raising infrastructure fees. You know, it's just not going to enable us to meet the needs going forward. First and foremost, putting a tax on gallons of fuel consumed is not sustainable. And the president has made a commitment, which I understand, that he's not going to raise taxes on people who make under $400,000. So I personally think we should just take it off the table. It would be a distraction. People who have never stepped up over the course of the last 13 years would seize upon this and not the broader themes and priorities. We need to make sure that we look at, comprehensively, the proposals that the Biden administration has made. First and foremost is raising the corporate tax rate partially to where it was, back to 28%. This is something that was perfectly acceptable to the business community four years ago, and keeps us in line so that we're competitive with international taxes. Establishing a global minimum tax. We should no longer have revenue, business income, that doesn't have a home, that's laundered through a post office box in the Cayman Islands. Establish a global minimum tax is something that is in the interest of a number of our allies and partners. Ending offshoring tax incentives, raising the rate on top earners. It's just rather stunning as we look at the evidence that the highest income, the top one underreport their income by over a fifth. Whoa. And in fact, there is evidence that the top one-tenth of a percent, under-report on an order of magnitude, twice that. So let's by all means raise the tax back up to where it was on the top earners, tax capital gains like we do ordinary income, like happened with the Reagan administration. But most fundamentally, and this is radical for some, have people pay the taxes they already owe, under-reporting, over a fifth, and the higher up the income, the more income they can't keep track of, or they forget, or they cut corners. That's not fair to the majority of, vast majority of people who actually play by the rules. And this could represent, a tr- in and of itself, could represent a trillion dollars over the next decade. These proposals are not controversial. There is significant public support for all of them. The public thinks that rich people should pay the taxes that they owe. They're willing to raise the rates on the highest earners and on the corporate community, which has frankly been treated very generously. Look at all the recent articles about the dividend increases and the stock buybacks. This is something that is popular with the public for a reason. I don't think that we can afford to wait any longer to step up and make these changes. The Ways and Means Committee has a wide range of these options. These aren't set in stone. The administration has expressed a willingness to be able to adjust these going forward. But having those with the ability to pay who have been Generously rewarded with the tax changes from the Republicans and people who simply are not paying taxes that are due. These will end up making our economy fairer while it gives us the resources we need to rebuild and renew America. And as we've talked on this program before, these investments actually will end up paying for themselves and it's not the elusive trickle-down tax cuts pay for themselves. They don't, and the evidence is pretty clear. But we've had pretty significant analyses, like uh, Standard & Poor's and others, that indicate when we make those investments, they provide significant economic impact that are sustainable over time. It will spread those benefits across the economy, create several million family wage jobs, and be able for us to make a difference in the quality of life and the business climate in each and every community across the country. Last but not least, it will enable us to move forward with a low-carbon transportation future and to make a significant down payment to heal the destructive impacts of infrastructure in the past, So many of you are in communities that devastated low income communities with infrastructure that was not sensitively planned, moved people out or forced them to live immediately adjacent to projects that really degraded the quality of life and actually made infrastructure more difficult for others. This is the first time since I've been in Congress, we've got an administration, that is committed to actually doing something with infrastructure and step up with proposals that they will be willing to enact to pay for it. We have a majority in the House and the Senate that are not going to push these aside and are already moving forward. I think this is an exciting moment for an opportunity to recover from the pandemic, to rebuild and renew America and to deal with infrastructure justice. I appreciate the chance to share some of my observations with you and look forward to our working together in the course of the next month and a half, where we're going to see these things come together. If if it's going to happen, it has to happen in the next six to eight weeks.
2: Thank you so much, Congressman. We are so appreciative of your taking the few moments you have in between your votes to be with us and also appreciative of your working with us going forward and of your past adjoining our webinar series as well, and in the future as this issue is not going to be perhaps immediately dealt with. But it is on the table now and let's turn to the questions and half of the questions all bring the question of equity which is clearly on the table as we think about the infrastructure bill. Let me read some of these questions. And I know that, Mark, you also are time-constrained, so perhaps we can start with you answering them. But let me give you a flavor for the questions. First, from Mary Sue Barrett, President, Metropolitan Planning Council, how can the American Jobs Plan best achieve both infrastructure and equity goals? Are we prepared to reject dated formulas and deploy dollars to close the racial wealth gap? Also, from... Deborah Nason, founder and president of EcoDriver Cities. How can we assure equity and inclusion will be at the forefront of how funding will be dispersed? Mayor, let's start with you and then other panelists, please join in.
5: So uh, it was great to hear the congressman and appreciate his, his vision and longstanding work on this equity issue. One of the things I have been thinking and really want to suggest to the administration is that within the actual legislation, there needs to be an equity provision, which sort of maps out how equity concerns can be met, because the equity concerns are met in the execution level. And it's very, very, it affects every decision. Number one, where a project is going to be located. Number two, what is the impact of that project, both on existing neighborhoods and future economic growth. It also impacts how you ensure that black people and people of color are actually in line to do the work, both as contractors and as business owners is a very significant part indeed of equity because this is how people build careers. This is how businesses build capacity. And I think we need a provision in the American Jobs Plan, a refreshed provision, not a 1990s provision, that will compel this sort of commitment. The other thing I've, I've been given thought to is we require, in the case of transportation projects, environmental studies, environmental impact statements. And I wonder if, on a collateral track, on a parallel track, you can also have an equity analysis and an equity impact statement as to how these projects are in fact cited and how they are in effect executed. The other thing I would say is I believe and, and hope that people will understand that one way to also ensure equity is to empower mayors of American cities to make decisions and not allow all the decisions, particularly on infrastructure, to be made at the state level or by regional planning organizations. And that is why I've been a big proponent of ensuring that municipal infrastructure, whether it's water projects, because there's a substantial need for upgrades in water systems all across the nation, or number two, community facilities. We're talking about schools. We're talking about community centers. We're talking about parks and playgrounds. We're talking about those things that are in neighborhoods Real infrastructure that can impact an underserved neighborhood are included in this project, and I'm a huge champion and proponent of the Community Development Block Grant Public Facilities Program, which could be substantially funded to give mayors flexible dollars for community-based infrastructure in an American jobs plan. Suffice it to say, these are some thoughts that we have today on How we make sure that equity is addressed. And I do believe that there's got to be an imprimatur of equity built into the legislative language beyond just a verbal commitment to ensure that this significant investment, and I support a large investment in the trillions, truly, truly can bend towards closing the racial wealth gap and also closing the underinvestment and the public investment redlining that has impacted many neighborhoods and many cities across the nation.
2: Thank you, Mayor. I'm happy to see, Congressman, that you're still with us, and perhaps you wish to start then in addressing the mayor's call for dealing with the underinvestment in underserved communities through empowering mayors, perhaps through CDBG flexible dollars and to make sure that underserved communities are in the language of the bill, at the center of the bill's purposes.
1: Can I just interject for one second, if I may, Congressman, I apologize, and Susan, I just want to remind everybody that you are tuned in to special briefing coming to you from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR, and that this and all of our past episodes are available on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites, and I encourage you to go back and have a look and have a listen. Congressman, I apologize for uh, for interrupting, and we also, of course, want to hear from Holly on this, on this subject, because you're at the heart of the proposal, at least at the White House end.
7: Well, No, and I I look forward likewise because Polly is in the pilot seat here in terms of trying to manage all of these activities, both in terms of policy and the direct administration. But I think she will testify that equity is at the center Of what and a low-carbon future, this is what it's all about. The administration's been very clear. I mean, I love the provision. There's a $25 billion set-aside in their proposal to help deal with communities that had infrastructure that just tore them apart and to be able to do some healing. There's a project in my community that just cries out for some of this investment that would go back and restore the historic Black community that had infrastructure driven through it without sensitivity to the impact of the people that were left, just tore it up. And there's an initiative that's being developed. This fund would be tailor-made to be able to heal and repair. Equity is a priority with the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. We've had continuous efforts in terms of our hearings on ways and means where we're dealing with the impact of what we do on BIPOC, what's happened with underserved communities. This is, in fact, a priority that underscores all that we're doing repeatedly in terms of the funding mechanisms. That's one of the reasons why there is little interest at this point in moving forward with increases in user fees, because the impact on that is likely to hit low and medium income people, and not be sustainable over time. The funding mechanisms that have been proposed by the administration, which we strongly support, shelter the vast majority of American families making these investments. If we're at some point, we want to turn to it, if there's a requirement for some adjustment, I think that it should be only as an interim that is used to get us to the point where we can actually eliminate the gas tax. In the course of the next 10 years, it's going to be more inequitable, it's gonna be less effective in generating money, and there's going to be other dislocations. We ought to be on a path to replace the gas tax with a user fee that will catch the electrified vehicles, for instance, and it can be tailored in a way that we minimize impacts on lower income communities with tax credits and so forth. So this is something that is a central thesis for Democrats on ways and means, on the infrastructure committee. It's going to be equitable and it's going to be low carbon. And Polly can tell you more how we do it.
2: Thank you, Congressman.
4: Secretary? I will jump in and try and add what I can to, I think, the, the fantastic insights of the Congressman and the Mayor. You know, just to echo, I, I am really proud to join an administration, you know, coming after obviously a year in this country and, and really a year around the world where, you know, we've had a real reckoning on questions of, of equity and, and racism in this country. And it, it's been, I think, a fantastic time to have that discussion in transportation, where we have a real legacy both of as the Congressman was mentioning, ways in which transportation projects have been destructive and and dividing in communities and and left them with disproportionate environmental impacts, but also deprive them of investments, much needed investments. I think the American Jobs Plan and the the philosophy of the Biden administration is really going, first of all, at those two elements, at relooking at the way we do investments and targeting a lot for those communities. And, And to the mayor's comment, I think particularly creating some programs where mayors and local officials can have a bigger say in how those funds are directed. particularly a focus also on things like mass transit, I think an area where the country has has underinvested. Likewise, as the congressman mentioned, the $25 fund and other ideas and how we can start to sort of reckon with that legacy of environmental damage, of tearing communities apart, but do it in a positive way. I mean, turn those into investments where we're creating transportation inputs that knit communities together and that to get at the mayor's comment that create jobs that build American industry. Some of you may have seen actually the secretary just announced that DOT is going to be restarting some local hire pilots for both on the highways and transit side, which is getting at what the mayor is saying, which is let's get the communities that have been impacted by these transportation projects, let's make sure they have a hand in building and operating those projects, you know, and likewise that those contractors get a seat at the table in bidding for those projects. So it, it's, I think, going to happen on multiple levels. It requires partnership for some of this with our with our colleagues in Congress. And no question, that's why, you know, leaders like Congressman Bloomer are going to be really important because, you know, this is a big debate right now about what is the best way to do this and ensure that those investments, particularly, again, on the climate front, are really, really focused on benefiting communities that have not previously shared in in the prosperity of our infrastructure.
7: Referencing Polly's point, I am hopeful that we can have an opportunity to think about metropolitan planning associations and how that regional allocation takes place. Because the structure in most regions really is a disproportionate influence for small and suburban areas and for the state and not for the major cities. It really violates one person, one vote. I hope we can step up and make some of these adjustments that will empower the regions to be able to act as regions and not as fiefdoms and actually pose problems for the big cities. The other thing that I would just mention as I'm going back to the floor is I noticed there was a question about raising the passenger facility charges for airports. I've got legislation that would in fact do that, that would enable local airport authorities to increase the passenger facility charges. It is long overdue. This is an opportunity for them to tailor it to their local needs. And frankly, I think some of the protests we hear from some of the airlines that if there's an extra 50 cents or a dollar on a ticket, people will stop flying. These are the same folks that, are, that want to charge you for peanuts, water, maybe even using the bathrooms to say nothing about baggage charges. So I think those protests ring a little hollow, and we ought to approve my legislation to give local airport authorities control over their passenger facility charges for long overdue improvements. But on that note, I thank you for letting me be with you, and we'll look forward to more conversations.
2: Thank you, Congressman. I do want to bring up the question of a national infrastructure bank. I don't know whether that also is part of the congressman's agenda, but secretary, perhaps you can address it. The question is from Patrick Brett, who's head of municipal debt capital markets and capital solutions Citigroup. And the question is, there is some conversation about standing up a new national infrastructure bank. Would you agree that the U.S. Department of Transportation's existing TIPIA and RRIF programs for surface transportation are already a successful national infrastructure bank. Why not expand these and include sectors like airports?
4: Secretary? It's a great question, and I want to build also a bit on on what Bob Poole was talking about, because I think he has some, some good insights on those credit programs. They have unlocked a lot of good investment. Admittedly, the process could certainly be streamlined. We take your point about that. I would say this, just something to bear in mind when the federal government gets involved in, in lending money, there are a lot of hurdles and a, a lot of sort of oversight. So it's, it's never going to be probably quite as quick and easy as folks would like it to be. But I think you've seen in a bipartisan way, administration stepping up and increasing their use of TIFIA. Certainly PABs have been a huge success. And, and I take Bob's point about how we're running out of capacity there. I think there are ways we can continue to build on those credit programs. But I, I think probably perhaps one way... The Biden administration might have a bit of a philosophical difference with Bob is we were sort of musing on this word infrastructure, which is a mouthful and not necessarily an accessible word, as as the mayor pointed out. I think the older term was called public works. And the Senate, in fact, still has a committee called the Environment and Public Works Committee. And that implies that some of these projects, I think, are built to serve public purposes. Some can be monetized, for sure. But I think perhaps there's a good portion of them that can't. And so I think an infrastructure and these credit programs has a role to play, but it, it's not going to be, I think, a wholesale substitution for public investments, particularly, again, if we're looking to tackle, I think, at least for this administration, some very fundamental goals, tackling climate change, addressing sustainability, addressing equity. So I think a mixture is in mind and, and probably reasonable minds can disagree about sort of how much an infrastructure bank would handle these projects and, and what proportion would be publicly financed? I'm so sure Bob has a view on that. Yes, I'm sure he does, and I want to go to Bob.
2: And I also want to generalize the question more broadly for you, Bob Poole, and perhaps going back to Secretary Trottenberg, which is the question of, is there bipartisan coming together on the funding? Is it possible? You know, The user fees, part of it, just an impossibility. And are, so? are there other ways of coming together? But Bob, the question to you is on the potential for a bank.
6: I'm not sure that that's really needed at all. Secretary has raised a good point about the non-transportation infrastructure. There may be a role there. I think the existing transportation programs are doing a good job and need some streamlining and expansion. But I don't think we need a new infrastructure bank for the transportation ones, but maybe for the other infrastructure.
2: But the the existing bank that is already there could perhaps be expanded. There seems to be some
6: meaning. There's the question of subject matter expertise. If you you have people very familiar with transportation finance running the transportation programs, they may not be that familiar with real estate type of things and schools and and city halls and other kinds of infrastructure. So it's not necessarily a one size fits all in terms of the kind of expertise you need in, in the programs.
2: Thank you, Adam. Clearly, it's not a one-size-fits-all, and this is a huge question for our nation going forward. This is not the last. We will be talking about it on our special briefing, and we hope it's not the last time we will have these wonderful panelists with us. Let me turn it back to you, Bill, to close us up.
1: I will talk fast because we are just about out of time. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, Deputy Secretary Trottenberg, Bob, Earl, Dick, and a cast of thousands, thanks to uh, all the people working
0: behind the scenes here. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19, and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.